Hello and welcome to the Hardcore Zen Podcast. My name is Brad Warner and I will be your host. I am the author of Hardcore Zen, Sit Down and Shut Up, Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen, Sex, Sin, and Zen, and many other fine books about Zen Buddhism and other stuff. This podcast is supported by your donations, and if you'd like to donate, go to hardcorezen.info donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate. There you will find links to my PayPal and Patreon accounts. Those are my main ways of making a living these days, so I thank you for your support. But as always, this podcast is offered for free, so you don't have to donate if you don't want to donate. All right, today we are up to part five of my commentary on Yuibutsu Yobutsu, aka Buddhas Alone Together with Buddhas, the famous fascicle by Master Dogen. And if you want to read or hear the whole thing, you can hear it by going to episode one in this series, the first one that's titled Buddhas Alone Together with Buddhas, that's episode one. And there I read the whole thing. And if you want to read it with your eyeballs, you can become a Patreon subscriber at any level, even a dollar a month, or I don't know if they let you go below a dollar a month, but if they let you go to a penny a month, you can still do it. You can still see it, um, and you can read it there on the uh, on the Patreon page. All right, so for part five, what am I going to do? Well, I thought I would try something a little different today because I got a an email from somebody who reads or who listens to this podcast and it was really nice and one of the things he said is I really enjoy your podcasts but when you get too scholarly you just lose me and I thought "Mm, maybe that's true for more people than just uh, this reader or listener sorry I keep calling you readers so for today's episode I'm gonna forego most of the scholarly stuff or I'm gonna try I haven't started yet obviously because I'm just telling you this now but I'm going to see how much I can just wing it without going and, and looking up a lot of stuff in books like I usually do. Uh, so this time I didn't spend, uh, like I, uh, when I usually do these podcasts, I spend a bunch of time before preparing and writing notes and going through every translation and comparing them and contrasting them and stuff. And, and I thought, well, let's see if, uh, if I try one where I don't do that. And this is an especially good one to try because this is the part of the essay Buddhas Alone Together with Buddhas that really struck me the very first time uh, I read it and the very first time I tried to write anything about it, which uh, the first time I tried to write anything about it was for my book, Sit Down and Shut Up, which was uh, which came out in 2007. And there's a chapter in there. I don't have a copy of the book here to check, but I'm pretty sure the title is... Ziggy's barking at something. Anyway, that's my dog. Uh, the title of the chapter, I think, is something like Bad Hair Day or Buddhist Bad Hair Day or something like that. And it was about the section that I'm just about to read to you now. So let's just jump into it. Uh, who said that? I don't remember. Anyhow, sorry for all the squeaking and the noises. I decided to record outside today. Usually I record the podcasts inside, indoors, where it's a little bit of a controlled environment, but today it was kind of cold inside and warm outside, so I decided to to do it uh, outside. So you're going to hear Ziggy and you're going to hear squeaky things and you'll probably hear cars passing by. I hope that doesn't bother you too much, Uh, but let's just get into this stuff that we want to get into. Here's the bit I want to talk about. This is Dogen. He says, well, via my paraphrase, Dogen says, A long time ago, a monk asked his master, 
When a million things come at me all at once, what should I do? His master said, don't try to control them. And now Dogen comments on this. He says, this means that we should let whatever is going to come at us come. In any case, don't get mixed up in them. This is the swift-moving Buddha Dharma of this moment. It has nothing to do with circumstances. I'm not saying this to criticize or scold you. I'm just telling you the truth about how things are. Even if you try to control circumstances, it can't be done. And that was the section that uh, inspired that chapter of Sit Down and Shut Up. And, And... Without going back, as I said, I don't have a copy of Sit Down and Shut Up around the house to look at, so without going back and reading what I said there, I'll try to say something new. I think I probably read this at a time in my life that was pretty turbulent, which I would say the time in my life right now is pretty turbulent. All times in all lives seem to be turbulent. But I think maybe things might have been especially rough at the time I was reading this. And actually, they're especially rough now. So for different reasons, uh, this passage resonates with me. And maybe it'll resonate with you, too. When a million things come at me at once, what should I do? This is a question that a lot of people have who are practitioners of... Well, a lot of people have this question, even if they aren't practitioners of Zen. But practitioners of Zen think that maybe their teacher might have a good answer for them about what to do when everything just seems to kind of come crashing down, when you just, you're just in the middle of a lot of, a lot of stuff that, that seems very hard to deal with. And his master in the story says, don't try to control them. And Dogen says, let whatever is going to come, come, and don't get mixed up in it. This is the swift moving Buddha Dharma of this moment. And I think I missed this when I tried to comment on it back in 2007. This is the swift moving Buddha Dharma of this moment. That's what you're dealing with. You are dealing with the swift moving Buddha Dharma of this moment. Whatever whatever stuff is going on in your life is described by Dogen as the swift moving Buddha Dharma of this moment. And he says, I'm not saying this to criticize or scold you. I'm just telling you the truth of how things are. Even if you try to control circumstances, it can't be done. This is a hard lesson to learn because we always want to try to fix things. We always want to take the circumstances that are coming at us and try to control them somehow. I think everybody has this idea that if only this or that or the other thing would happen or if only they were like this or that or the other way, they could control the circumstances. But the circumstances of your life are beyond your control as an individual. You just can't do much about it. You have to figure out a way to flow with it. And in in some ways, it's going to sound like I'm saying you're powerless and, and that things are hopeless. And, and in a sense, I kind of am. But it's not really... The words powerless and hopeless make the situation sound very bleak. You know, you if you were powerful and hopeful, that would be good. And it's when you're powerless and hopeless, that's bad, right? That's the way we normally think of it. But a different way of looking at things is to say that our powerlessness and hopelessness are a kind of feature of life and that we're not completely powerless and we're not completely hopeless. 
Uh, it's just that in, in the terms of the big things, there's not much you can do. But what you can do is respond to it in the best way possible. That is the hard part. And, and usually responding to things in the best way possible is it's difficult. And this is what we do our zazen practice for. We do our zazen practice in order to expose ourselves moment by moment to the real situation that we are actually in. And zazen is a good way to do this, especially at the beginning, because at the beginning it can feel frustrating and boring and, God, I don't want to do this. And going through that, especially if you have a chance to go on a retreat where you do it over and over and over again for a few days, uh, that can be real instructive because you can see what happens when you don't immediately respond to the impulse to try to change the situation, even if the situation you want to change is, I want to change my position. I want to change my seating position. I want to uh, lay down or something or lounge instead of sitting up straight. You know, I want to be in the zendo that's not this hot or not this cold or, or I shouldn't have come here in the first place or I just got an itch. Actually, I usually scratch itches that come up in Zazen, but I've heard teachers talk about this, and I think it's probably more instructive to even to even go that far, to be like, even when you're itching, see what happens if you don't scratch. Actually, I got a little anecdote for that. One time I was talking about this very thing at a, a Zen retreat in Munich, Germany, and one of the people who was there happened to be a dermatologist, of all things. And he waited until after the discussion was over and he kind of cornered me, uh, you know, after the, you know, everybody was kind of saying goodbye. And he told me basically, this is my interpretation of what he said, itching is a scam. Actually, he didn't say itching is a scam, but I, that's what I took his words to mean. He, he told me that when you have an itch and scratch it, the scratching doesn't exactly relieve the itch. What happens is that an itch is a kind of a perception of a low level of pain. It's, it's, a, similar, it's a similar thing to pain. I, I always think of an itch as different from pain, but he was saying that they're on a continuum. So an itch is a kind of low level pain. And so what you do when you scratch an itch is you spread the area of that low level, level of pain out into a wider space along your skin, and then you don't notice the initial irritation as much, which I thought was fascinating. So itching is a scam and scratching is a scam. And, and I've tried it out a few times. If you don't scratch an itch, this doesn't go for every itch, but almost every itch, if you don't scratch it and you wait a few minutes, it just stops. And that's what happens when you scratch it anyway. You scratch it and it stops, but the scratching doesn't make it stop. It's just, <laughs> it's, you, we're getting the cause and effect relationship between those two things wrong. I thought that was very fascinating. So, you know, you might want to try it sometime in Zazen. Now, of course, this does not mean that somebody who's in a desperately bad situation, you know, I don't know, everybody can think of their own desperately bad situation. I always think of like a person in an abusive marriage or something like that. 
you know, this is not saying that somebody like that should just be, should just let whatever is going to come at them come, you know, and just be complacent about it. It's not about complacency. It's about your response to that situation. So if you're in one of those desperately bad situations, the response that you make should be a kind of a, God, I hate the word mindful, but a kind of a mindful response, a, a, a response that understands that the circumstances may be beyond your control, but there are small things you can do to make it better, and you should do those things. So get out of that abusive marriage, you know, find a way. So this is not advice for people in those kind of desperately bad situations, except it can be applied to those situations too. But I think this is more for I think this is better practiced on low-level situations like I described, like itching during Zazen or wanting to, to change the placement of your feet during Zazen. Learning to, learning to accept those kind of things in a very low-stakes sort of situation like Zazen practice can help you when the situation becomes desperate. Then when you get into a desperate situation, you kind of have a sense of a better way to respond to that. So again, this is not Dogen advocating for complacency in the case of a really desperate situation, but it is him offering advice. And the advice is, even if you try to control circumstances, it can't be done. I think Ziggy is, those of you who watch my videos know that he loves to bark at my father-in-law. And I think what happened is my father-in-law just came back in from being out. Yep, there he is. I can see him. So that's what Ziggy is barking at. I don't know why. It's a relationship those two have. So, uh, so that's what's going on there. So let's move along a little bit. Uh, I think we got that point covered. The next bit of Yuibutsu Yobutsu, Buddhas Alone Together with Buddhas, is another part of the essay that I find really fascinating, like personally fascinating. And it's something that stuck with me. I'll tell you, one of the reasons that I am covering Yuibutsu Yobutsu in this podcast is because it is a piece that I read by Dogen very early on in my studying of Dogen. And a lot of little bits of it stuck with me for years, and I didn't really know where they came from. You know, I would every once in a while I would reflect on these little bits, like the one I just talked about and the one that's coming up next, and, and go, oh, God, where does that come from? And it took me years of, because Shobogenzo is a huge, long piece, and when you read the whole damn thing, it's hard to remember where any individual, you know, lesson or, or line came from. So it's, I had to go through it again and again and again before I got familiar enough with it to, to be able to tell you where different lines came from. So I finally figured it out. Anyway, this next one is really interesting. So let me read it first. And I want to read you the whole thing before the whole idea, you know, before I, uh, and this isn't going to be the whole rest of the essay, but the whole I, next idea I want to read to you in one piece and then talk about it. So it's going to be, so let's, let's, uh, let's go uh, get into some Dogen right now. So, or at least Dogen is paraphrased by me. Here he goes. An ancient Buddha said, Mountains, rivers, and the great earth are born together with human beings. The Buddhas of the past, present, and future practice together with human beings. So that's the part that Dogen quotes from the ancient Buddhist master, and now he comments on it saying, 
If we look at mountains, rivers, and the great earth at the moment that someone is being born, we don't see this human being appear out of nowhere like a brand new thing on top of mountains, rivers, and the great earth that were already there. And this saying means even more than just that. How should you understand this saying? Even if you don't understand it, you shouldn't toss it aside. You really ought to look into this matter. These are words that were spoken by someone who knows the truth of things. We should pay attention. If we listen to these words carefully, maybe we can understand them. Here's a way to understand these words. Who knows just what it is to have been born? Who has investigated life and birth from the point of view of one human being and figured it all out from beginning to end? We don't know the end or the beginning, and yet it appears that we have been born. In the same way, we don't know all there is to know about mountains, rivers, and the great earth, yet here they are. They seem to be alive just like we are. You might complain that you can't see the connection between mountains, rivers, and the great earth and life or birth. But instead of complaining, try to look at mountains, rivers, and the great earth in the light of the way they're being described here as exactly the same as being born and being alive. There is no separation at all. I'll say it again. The Buddhas of past, present, and future have already accomplished the truth and perfected realization. So how are we to understand that this state of Buddha is the same as us? Start by understanding the action of Buddha. The action of Buddha includes the whole earth and all living things, which means that our bodies and our minds are included within their action. Any action that doesn't include everything isn't the action of Buddha. Therefore, from the moment of Buddha's establishment of mind right up until the attainment of realization, Buddha's practice and realization includes all living beings and the entire earth. Remember how, at the moment of his great awakening, the Buddha said, I and the great earth and all beings simultaneously achieve the way. All right, that is a lot to chew on. So let me stop there and let's see what we can do with that. Sorry about Ziggy barking. He's really today. Anyhow, there's a thing that a lot of Buddhist teachers that I've uh, listened to and read have said that sounds like the universe is born and dies with you, or sometimes the universe is born and dies with me. And if you're a follower of my blog, you will note that uh, I put up a, a an essay recently, or it's not really an essay, called The Universe is Born and Dies With You. That's on hardcorezen.info. And it was, I said in the blog, I didn't know what it was. It looks like a series of notes that I took for, for something. But as it turns out, they're perfect notes for what I want to talk about today. I didn't even realize that when I put it up on the blog about an hour ago. That's when I put it up. Because I put the blogs up on Mondays and record these. Uh, podcast on Mondays and then I put the blog yeah the blog goes up on Mondays but the podcast don't go out Fridays it doesn't matter this is all technical stuff anyway here's what I want to say some of these quotes I collected which sound like uh, 
the universe is born and dies with you. So let me just uh, throw a few at you. Uh, the first one is that one I just told you about from Dogen. Uh, mountains, rivers, and the earth are born, and human beings are born together. Uh, here is a version from the book Opening the Hand of Thought by Kosho Uchiyama. He says... When I took my first breath, my world was born with me. When I die, my world dies with me. In other words, I wasn't born into a world that was already here before me. I do not live simply as one individual among millions of individuals, and I do not leave everything behind me to live on after me. And here is a quote from the book Each Moment is the Universe by Dainin Katagiri. In that book, he says... When beings appear, why do you happen to be the particular being that you are now? You don't know exactly why, but you are a being whose life is already supported by the vast network of time and space. When a particular being arises, it's not just one thing that arises. All beings arise simultaneously. One thing can't arise alone because all life is deeply interconnected and nothing has its own independent existence. When you are born, the whole world is born with you. When you die, the whole world dies with you. And here's another one. Uh, This is Kodo Sawaki, and it appears in the book Discovering the True Self. Uh, Kodo Sawaki says, When we are born, our universe is born too. When we die, we take everything of our universe with us. And now here's another one. This is outside the Zen tradition, but this is from the book I Am That by Nisargadatta Maharaj, who is an Advaita Vedanta teacher, not a Zen teacher, but as I've said often, this, the philosophies are quite similar. Uh, he says, All the universe is born with the body and dies with the body. It has its beginning and end in awareness, but awareness knows no beginning or end. So those are, those are several interesting quotes, and I got a few more. Uh, here is Katagiri Roshi, and he says, Now is important because the moment that is right here, right now, is eternal, abiding forever. What does eternal mean? It means that moment after moment, right now appears as all beings, then again, right now, and again, right now. Right now appears forever. That's why now is eternal. This present is not just the present. It's connected with the whole universe. If you see this universe, you realize that you are a part of a dynamic reality that is constantly changing according to the conditions of every moment. Then you understand why human life is important. It is important because if you take care of right now with wholeheartedness, you create good conditions for the next right now. And here is Kosho Uchiyama Roshi again, and he says, I can't stress enough how essential it is to look very, very careful at this universal self that runs through everything in the universe. You live together with your world. Only when you thoroughly understand this will everything in the world settle as the self pervading all things. As Buddhists, we vow to save all sentient beings so that this self can become even more itself. And here's another quote from Kodo Sawaki Roshi. What I call me cannot sustain itself by itself. When we give up this me, it becomes the self that is the universe. And he also said, 
Your personal action is the action of the whole universe. You alone act as the universe. That is the deep meaning of Zen practice. Actually, what he says is that is the meaning of deep Zen practice, but I'm going to leave that mistake in because I like both versions. So that is the meaning of deep Zen practice. So that's some crazy stuff I read just there. You know, the, the world or the universe is born and dies with you. This is not what we are taught. Uh, at least it's not what I was taught. I was taught that the universe was here billions and trillions and gazillions of years before I was born and that I would live you know, my allotted lifespan and die and the universe would continue on a pace just like it always has without me. And from our point of view, it certainly looks like that's what happened. You know, you, you, I can think of a lot of people I know who I knew who who died and it, like the uh, the dead friend in letters to a dead friend uh, about Zen fame the book I wrote with that title uh, he died and the universe is still here at least as far as I can tell my mom died the universe is still here you know I could name a bunch of people who died and the universe still seems to be here so the statement that these Zen teachers uh, they're making Dogen and Koto Sawaki and Uchiyama Roshi and Dining Katagiri. I heard s- similar things from Nishijima Roshi, my teacher, and from Tim McCarthy, my, my first teacher. Uh, I, I've heard them ever since I started doing this practice, this idea that the universe is born and dies with me. And I I think, well, that's that sounds crazy. That sounds completely nutty. That doesn't sound like what I was taught to believe. And even now, even having had, you know, a few glimmers here and there of that understanding in a very visceral way, I still have trouble explaining it, but I think that it's true. It's true that both both things are true, meaning the idea that the universe continues on without me is true in a sense, but in another sense, it's not true. So this universe is me, and my life and death is the life and death of the universe, which sounds grandiose, but it also is about what Dogen says at the beginning of this section. It's, it's all connected. This is the fun thing for me about doing these podcasts as I start to see these connections that I didn't. He's telling us something that's important. When circumstances come that are beyond our control, don't try to control them because the universe is born and dies with you. I mean, that, that sounds like two unrelated ideas, but it's not. He's, he's saying that there's a connection. He's putting these two ideas together because there is a connection between them. This universe that you think is outside of you doing things that you don't like and, and manifesting as people you don't like and, and you know manifesting itself as a dog that's barking when you're trying to get a podcast done and so forth and so on, all that stuff that might be going on, including the very serious circumstances, whatever they are, the world circumstances that are, that are facing you. I, I won't even tell you what's going on currently in my world because it doesn't matter because whatever world you happen to be in listening to this, if you're listening to it, you know, years from now, if somebody's listening to this, I don't think people will be listening to this a hundred years from now, but even if there were people listening to this a hundred years from now, there would still be circumstances that they would be facing that seem to be beyond their control and seem to be really, really important. And 
frankly, they would look at the circumstances I'm living in as like, oh, people in the past dealt with that stuff. We figured that out now, <laughs> you know, just like we think of uh, things that happened 100 or 200 or 800 or 1,000 years ago. But it's all real important when it's happening. So whatever real important thing is happening, it's beyond your control because you are not what you think you are. You are the whole universe and you are also this one bit of the universe that's looking out and going, oh my God, these crazy people are doing crazy things or whatever it happens to be. They're they're both true. And you are in one sense, the most powerful being in the universe. And in another sense, nobody knows. You know, I am the most powerful being in the universe because I created this whole damn place. And nobody knows and nobody cares about my opinion. (laughs) And they just laugh at me when I say things. Uh, You know, they don't, they don't, they don't, uh, they don't bow down in reverence to me, even though they should because I created the whole universe. But we didn't create the whole universe in that way. I I was actually looking at some Hindu Advaita Vedanta philosophy the other day, and they have have a framework to explain this, which is lacking in in Zen. And so I'll just give it to you. They, They conceive of Atman and Brahman. So Atman is the individual self and Brahman is the universal self. But in in the greater sense, in the more fundamental sense, Brahman and Atman are the same thing. So the universal self and the personal self are the same thing. So this is quite similar to what uh, Dogen's been saying. But then they have other characters that uh, come into play to sort of mythologically help you get through the the dichotomy, the problem that you have of being both the universal self and the personal self. They say there's also uh, Ishvara, or, or Ishwara, I'm not sure if you pronounce it like a V or a W, who is a bit like Jehovah. And you have Jehovah God who who plays the role of the thing that created the universe. And that's one aspect of Brahman Atman, but in another sense it's separate it's separate from you as Brahman Atman. In Buddhism they've they've done away with the idea of the creator god. So it doesn't even enter into it as part of the mythology. Although you know it it's not uh, to me as per, as a person who studied Buddhism a lot that sort of Hindu idea of saying okay yeah your yourself and the self of the universe are the same thing but there's also this Ishvara who who you can look to from the point of view of the personal self and say yeah that guy created it um, th- that you know that mythology might be useful uh, you know, for some people it's it doesn't seem as useful as it is for others and maybe that's where the Zen stream comes in it's for people for whom ideas like that don't seem quite as useful as they do to other people but uh, th- I don't know if I can go any further on into that idea of the universe is born and dies with you than than the people I, I quoted for you just now. If you want to go look up those books and read the whole books just like I did, you can see that they say a few more things about it. But generally speaking, I've given you pretty much all that they're going to say about this idea, yet this idea seems to be very important. And I think the problem is that they're in the same boat as I am, 
in that you, you can see that this is true, but you can also see that there's this other way of looking at things, and there's no way to close the gap because it is a contradiction. And like I always say when I'm talking about studying Dogen, one of the things that, uh, that can help someone who wants to understand Dogen to understand Dogen is to understand that the contradictions are not a mistake. They're not, they're not something that he did accidentally. He didn't accidentally contradict himself and forget to erase the part where he contradicted himself. He's, he's facing you, the reader, facing me, the reader, with those contradictions and saying, here it is. Here is what life is. There are contradictions, and that is part of the nature of things. And, and maybe one way to understand that is to understand that we can't understand everything. I, I think we should always question our own understanding. And I do that a lot with myself. Every time I think that I understand something, I also think, yeah, but I'm kind of a dummy. And even if I can make, you know, whatever it is fit perfectly logically and, you know, work out an explanation for it, how do I know I'm right? You know, I might be completely wrong and have convinced myself I'm right. I, I've seen lots of people who've done that. <laughs> and also one of the things I, I've talked about uh, sometimes when I talk about my ex weird experiences with Zazen is I've had the experience of watching myself convince myself of something that I knew was wrong. And, and I think we all do that. And, and you can think of concrete examples from your own life rather than me give you, giving you concrete examples from my life. But we all do this. We manage to convince ourselves of things that, that another aspect of ourselves realizes are not true or not right. So if we can do that, we can also come up with an explanation that seems perfectly reasonable for anything and then realize that that's not even the right explanation, even though we are completely convinced by it. So that's, that's where I, I leave off with that sort of idea. It's just one of those contradictions that you'll never, ever get around. So let's go back to what Dogen says. He says, You might doubt this. It might seem like this sort of thing is forever unknowable. I understand your doubts, but you shouldn't try to figure out if other people experience this state of oneness. The boundary between self and other is an illusion. So that's interesting. He, he says kind of this kind of stuff a lot. He says that... Even our doubts are part of the truth. So even when we think we don't understand things, we have zero understanding, zero comprehension of what's going on, that experience of feeling like we have zero comprehension is also part of the truth. Our misunderstanding is part of the truth. And then he says, you shouldn't try to figure out if other people experience this state of oneness. This is something that resonates with me because I often do this. I, I did this with my teachers. I was going, mm, does that guy understand this state of oneness? But he says, the boundary between self and other is an illusion. So I understand exactly what my teachers understood. Only they might be able to express it in ways that I can't. That's how I think of that one. 
the next bit is, this is a teaching that you should try to understand. He, he says this a lot. So even when you don't understand this, this is a teaching you should try to understand. And I think this is good advice. I have often discovered that things my teachers said, which seemed incomprehensible for years, will suddenly come through with great clarity. So this is a teaching you should try to understand. He says, we establish and practice the Buddha way together with Buddha. Our own body and our own mind is part of the Buddha. It hasn't somehow leaked away. And when he says the Buddha, he's talking about the cosmic Buddha, you know, Buddha in the sense of almost like saying God. So our body and mind hasn't leaked away from God. We are still part of of God. They say that to doubt this is to disparage Buddhas of the past, present, and future. So we better not do that. Then he says, when we look quietly at ourselves, we can see the truth that our own body and mind has been practicing in the same manner as the Buddhas of the past, present, and future. That might be hard to believe, but... You know, it's like uh, it's like when you're in a band starting out and you go, did the Beatles start off this way? Yeah, the Beatles started off that way. They started off in their garage banging away at their instruments and not, you know, making horrible sounds. So that's that's us. We're 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 the Beatles in the garage band phase, or at least that's what I, I think of us as. Um, and we are Buddhas, but we are Buddhas who are still working on it. And he goes on. We can see the truth that we have established the very same mind that they also established. So when they decided to start embarking on this seeking, that's where we are now. And look where they got, you know, look how big the Beatles got. Of course, it didn't work out so well for John Lennon. So maybe that's not a good example, but I think you know what I mean. So let's keep going. When we reflect upon the past and future of this very body and mind, we can say for certain that I am not myself and I am not anybody else. Oh my God, that's weird. But again, when you look at it, I am not myself because I'm not the idea that I have of myself. But I'm, on the other hand, I'm not somebody else. And he goes on. In that case, we should know that we are not some fixed thing set apart from the rest of the universe. How then could we ourselves be separate from past, present, and future? All such thoughts do not belong to us. And that's where I'm going to leave Dogen for today and just see what I can say to kind of sum up. I think that this is really good stuff, but it's very heavy stuff. And this is one of the reasons I like this chapter a lot. You could kind of say this for almost any chapter in Dogen's Chobo Genzo, but this this chapter seems to be a kind of a condensation of a lot of important things that he says throughout Chobo Genzo. And it's kind of a shame that this piece was never finished. It, it almost seems like this might have been something similar to what he was trying to do with Genjo Koan. Genjo Koan is his most famous piece of writing, and it started out as a letter. He was writing to a student of his who lived in Kyushu, which is the southernmost of the main islands of Japan. And, and I guess he was trying to put into a, a short form 
all of the most important stuff about about his practice and about his understanding. So uh, Genjo Koan is only, gosh, I don't know, three or four pages long. Who knows how long it was? It, you know, short enough that it could fit into a, a letter. I don't know if they had envelopes back in those days or how they sent letters. But Dogen, once he finished composing it, must have thought it was uh, good stuff because back then you couldn't Xerox it or you couldn't save it on your hard drive. So he had to copy by hand the letter that he'd just you know, put in an envelope or whatever he did with it. He had to copy his own letter by hand and save it. And he saved it for years and he made revisions and he was still doing revisions on Genjo Koan up until he, near the end of his life. So we know he thought it was really important. And maybe this uh, Yuibutsu Yobutsu was a similar sort of composition that was trying to put a lot of really deep stuff into as short uh, and compact of a package as possible. I think maybe that's what he was doing. But there you go. There's a little bit of Yuibutsu Yobutsu for you and a little bit of what I think of it. And Ziggy's back to barking at my father-in-law again. It's like I say, I don't know what to do. These two just have a relationship. They seem to get along together, but uh, Ziggy likes to bark at him. Anyway, that's it for me. If you want to donate to keep this podcast going, go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate, and you'll find my PayPal and Patreon links, and those are my main means of support, so I really appreciate it. And as I said right at the beginning, you don't have to donate if you don't want to, but it really helps me out if you do, so I appreciate your donations a lot, so thanks. And we will see you next time. Have a good time all the time. Laters. Bye.